0: Today we're talking about energy markets post-COVID, amid a conflict and in a decarbonising world. The war in Ukraine is now past the 100 days mark. Oil and gas prices are just short of the peaks at the beginning of the war, having climbed over the last two months. Inflation is in the highest single digits across most major economies. Utility bills and prices at the pump are causing a cost-of-living crisis The UK, Europe and the US have now committed to various bans on imported oil and gas from Russia to come into effect by the end of 2022, and all this takes place as vast swathes of the global economy attempt to return to some level of normalcy after two years of interruptions caused by COVID. It also takes place as the world grapples with the need to swiftly decouple growth and prosperity with global emissions to fight climate change. How is all this affecting the energy transition? My name is Julia Newbold and I'm Managing Editor at Conexus Financial, publisher of Investment Magazine and Top1000Funds.com. Today I'm joined by Tom Nelson, Head of Thematic Equity at 91, the Global Investment Manager established in South Africa in 1991. 91 is committed net zero by 2050 and supports investing that is aligned with the Paris Agreement to limit global warming to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. Tom has been with 91 for 10 years and is Portfolio Manager of the Global Natural Resources Strategy. Tom is based in London. Welcome, Tom. It's great to have the opportunity to speak with you at this time, to hear what you're thinking about the extent of the shock to energy markets and how it will impact the transition to clean energy.
1: Thank you very much, Julia. It's an absolute pleasure to be with
0: you. Tom, can you please set the scene for us and put what is currently happening in energy markets into context for us?
1: Yes, and I think it's very important at the outset to recognise that there are uh, parallels and comparisons to be drawn with history, but also important to recognise that... uh, this is a unique situation. What I mean by that is that uh, there is a tendency at the moment to draw direct parallels with what happened in the 1970s, because, of course, in the 1970s, we had an oil supply shock uh, prompted initially by the Arab-Israeli war, um, and we clearly had a period of high inflation and very challenging overall economic conditions. Some of those situations, circumstances are in place today, and it's it's. I wouldn't in any way belittle or undermine what we're living through. This is an energy shock. Uh, it has surprised the market, it has surprised all of us, and when we look back, we will look back and say, how did we ever find ourselves in a situation where particularly here in Europe, we were so reliant on Russian natural gas and, and Russian oil? Um, however, that's the situation in which we find ourselves. So it's an appropriate comparison to draw. It's a major energy supply shock. Uh, It's come out of left field. We're now seeing the inflationary impacts. We're seeing at a consumer and at an an individual level, uh, the discomforts, the cost of living, et cetera, that comes as a result of that. And I think as investors, we need to think very carefully about what could happen from here. Again, there's a tendency to say we're going to see rampant inflation, we're going to go into a stagflationary period. Let's just see. But in the short term, undoubtedly, a seismic event in global energy markets. And of course, it collides with the situation we were in before, which was the early stages of an energy transition. And energy transitions are Even without a Russia-type event, energy transitions are volatile and complicated.
0: Tom, when you say that, you know, no two supply shocks are the same, can you explain some of the key differences that would have been with the Arab oil embargo and today's removal of Russia?
1: Yes, I suppose the principal difference to highlight would be that Russia and Ukraine, between them, have a much larger or much broader influence in global commodity and natural resources markets than uh, the the overall impact or the overall effect that the Arab-Israeli war and that oil embargo had on broader markets. So that was very much an oil-led crisis. And, and you know, the history books can show us what it did to the price of oil, uh, the impact it had on global geopolitics, international relations, etc., cetera, et cetera. This one is different because if you look between Russia and Ukraine together at the broad spectrum of physical commodities and natural resources which are impacted, it has effects across energy, principally in natural gas, but also in crude oil. It has very pronounced effects in agriculture, uh, in in wheat and grain, uh, also in fertilizer, um, and also across the metal spectrum. Um, in, including precious metals like palladium, so that that's probably the principal difference. Um, but it's it, it's 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 appropriate to draw a comparison with the 1970s. But as is always the case when one draws these comparisons with historical events from decades before, there are key similarities and learnings we can extract, but also key differences.
0: And can you explain a little bit more about the inflation? You're saying that we shouldn't be as concerned.
1: I I don't know, Julia. I think it's it's too early to say. Um, the financial and economic conditions in which we find ourselves broadly are are different as a starting point from those in which we found ourselves in the early to mid-1970s. As I say, that there's often a tendency to say, oh, we've seen this before. So you get out the 1970s playbook and say, well, what did policymakers do? What happened to interest rates, et cetera, et cetera? It, it, it's sort of different today. I think one of the things that I'm particularly interested in is the extent to which the U.S. as an energy and and broad resources economy of its own is much more self-sufficient today than it was in the 1970s. So in the 1970s, once, once, if you like, Middle Eastern oil uh, as a supply source to the U.S. was jeopardized or cast into doubt, you know, that created a major political and broader geopolitical hiatus. Of course, America today is in a very different position. Uh, America is entirely self-sufficient in natural gas, almost entirely self-sufficient in crude oil, including products. So the the American economy and the extent to which it is affected, but also the way that that affects American uh, foreign policy is quite dramatically different from what it was in the mid-1970s.
0: And, Tom, before we go on, can you provide a bit more around what you mean by third energy transition?
1: yes, yeah, so the the concept of the energy transition is effectively the move from one principal energy source uh, onto another. and so if we if if we look back at historical changes, um, and and I'm painting with a relatively broad brush here, but effectively we moved in the nineteenth century or over the course of the nineteenth century from burning wood and biomass. We move towards coal, uh, the Industrial Revolution, uh, the dawn of the age of steam, et cetera. Over the course of the 20th century, we move from burning coal to using oil and gas. And, And so those would be, as it were, the first two energy transitions. We believe what we are now living through is the third one, and that is a move away from fossil fuels and hydrocarbons more broadly towards low carbon and renewable energy sources. Now these transitions as I alluded to a little earlier are by definition extremely volatile prices tend to gyrate as new supply sources come on but also demand trends change we should we should expect volatile pricing through the transition we were seeing that already before the Ukrainian conflict i think two other quick points to make on these transitions one is that they tend to take a little bit longer than people expect. You know, history will tell us that they tend to take between 30 and 50 years. Now, this one might be expedited by the urgency around climate change. And the other point to make is that they tend to be more a case of an energy supply diversification rather than an overnight revolution where the incumbent effectively gets jettisoned. So we didn't stop burning wood and biomass when we found coal. Neither, sadly, did we stop burning coal when we discovered oil and gas. And I think what we're perhaps beginning to learn in in real time is that the advent and the arrival of low carbon and renewable energy sources will not mean that we simply stop burning oil, gas and coal overnight. We may want to and we may aspire to for environmental reasons. The reality, of course, is that as we march towards a global population of 10 billion, we're consuming more and more and more energy with every passing year, and we're going to need more and more energy sources. Let's hope that more of them can be low carbon, but let's not forget that you can't just ditch the incumbents, the established sources overnight.
0: And you said that spikes in hydrocarbon prices can be expected? Yes, I I think...
1: That's certainly what history uh, can tell us. I mean, one of the one of the nuances or the complexities around these transitions is that a view is formed, or a forecast, a consensus estimate emerges around when demand trends will start to change. And in the case of this transition, we've all been attempting to forecast for a long, long time, as in. the the best part of 10 years, when, for example, electric vehicles will attain a dominant position in the global car market? When will coal be marginalised? When will particularly wind and solar power generation uh, displace coal, but also gas? And, and, and in, in, as these views begin to emerge and these consensus sort of forecasts are established, one of the knock on effects of that, by our estimation, is that central players in the market, governments, countries, established companies, they stop investing in new supply. And that's something that we've seen as a very clear trend, I would say, particularly since 2015. There has been a marked slowdown in capital expenditure, particularly in energy, but we've also seen it in mining and materials. And so as people have invested less in new supply, that inherently makes the system more vulnerable to supply shocks and supply disruptions. And that is one of the reasons why the recent price action since the invasion of Ukraine has been as pronounced and as dramatic as it has been We we simply don't have the spare capacity or the the, the buffer, if you like, uh, to fall back on. The system was fairly stretched going into it. We began to see, particularly in energy markets, fairly uh, aggressive upward price action through the second half of last year, both in oil and actually in natural gas as Russia started to hold back supply. So... That's one of the reasons prices tend to be volatile. I think it's one of the reasons that we're seeing some of the price action we're seeing today. But essentially, if you were to zoom out from the Russia-Ukraine situation and actually the historic five or seven years of underinvestment, what one would say is that prices tend to be volatile through these transitions because the speed at which we transition is exceptionally difficult to forecast. I think we can probably all agree with reasonable confidence about where we're going to get to in all of this. What we we can't determine is the speed at which we'll do it. And and that varying speed or uncertainty around speed leads to differences in supply and demand. And generally speaking, energy markets in particular are relatively finely balanced. And small changes in supply demand estimates, as we've seen over the last three or four decades tend to lead to quite dramatic price action.
0: How much of a shock um, to you in your forecasting was the Ukraine invasion? That's a great
1: question because we kind of have to take ourselves back mentally to where we were in January and through the first half of February. I think in some ways it was a great shock because with a reasonably established knowledge and understanding of the energy system and how reliant the European market was on Russia, there was a tendency to fall back on a view of, well, they couldn't do that or it it couldn't happen because the ramifications, the implications would be so severe. Um, At the same time, we must challenge ourselves retrospectively because it happened in slow motion with every passing day and passing week the threat of the invasion became ever more real. And the sense in which Putin's conviction around doing it increased was was quite palpable. So we were very surprised, make no mistake. But I think looking back, um, perhaps we shouldn't have been so surprised.
0: And the way it's dragged on now past 100 days, has that been a bit of a surprise as well?
1: Well, look, I I think we're all learning with every day and every passing week. Um, We're learning things that we we simply didn't understand about everything from uh, the Russian military, um, about which there was probably a consensus view that they would just be, they would overwhelm uh, even, you know, the, the the most sort of staunch Ukrainian resistance and defense. The, clearly, the Ukrainian reaction and defense uh, led um, by Zelensky has been extraordinary. I was listening to a fascinating podcast about it last night, focusing on the, the role of the individual in defining history. And And there is an element of two individuals here. A lot of people didn't think that President Putin would actually do what he did. But equally, if Zelensky had fled or gone into hiding or, 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 or left the country on day one, then we wouldn't be sitting here today in the situation that we are. So I think it's a fascinating reminder of the role of the individual, even in modern history, which is sort of analysed to its, um, you know, ad infinitum. So no, we, we continue to, to, to learn to, to be surprised by varying aspects of it. One could say, for example, the reaction of the European Union uh, vis-a-vis Russian oil and gas has been perhaps more uh, certain and 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 quicker and more finite than perhaps many would have forecast um, so it, it's a, it's a it's an evolving and fascinating both energy and geopolitical situation um, and i guess one of the key questions around it all when you put those two strands together of the geopolitics and the energy component is the extent to which this transition which i alluded to earlier will be accelerated or held up by what's happening now and that's something we're all trying to figure out
0: and so the investment before this all happened would it have been um too low should there have been a greater investment in the transition I think,
1: yeah so I, th- I think there's a couple a couple of things there we we I mean the European move towards low carbon and renewable energy was uh, was accelerating and uh, the European energy landscape today versus 10 years ago in 2012 is 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 almost unrecognizable. I think one of the challenges was that when you think about the what we conceptually call the energy trilemma which is trying to balance security of supply with favourable economics of supply and then environmental footprint. We spent a lot of time, as many others had done, looking at environmental footprint and favourable economics. And clearly, on both of those, the move towards low carbon was very well supported. I think what we, where we'd spent inadequate time, certainly with hindsight, was on the security of supply part. And in the case of mainland Europe in particular uh, there was a view that you know the russian part was was secure was stable was visible was well understood uh, and that that could could as it were maintain the status quo from a hydrocarbon point of view while the low carbon and renewable energy piece uh, was was uh was pursued very actively and what we've seen effectively over the last four months is that 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 foundation piece, particularly vis-à-vis natural gas, has now been jeopardised. So it's it's a very, very unusual coming together of these two events, an energy supply shock and an energy transition. We've seen energy supply shocks before. We've seen two energy transitions. We've never seen two collide.
0: So, Tom, a defining element of the transition is the urgent need to tackle climate change. Could this lead to a faster transition? Are people really um, pushing for it? And does does war in Ukraine mean countries, especially in Europe, will accelerate transition?
1: I think this is this is a, a, a classic case of separating the time horizons, and what I mean by that is that ultimately, as a result of this Russia-Ukraine conflict and the the reaction by the European Union to Russian hydrocarbon supply more generally, I strongly believe that that will, over the long term, accelerate the transition. In other words, the urgency to move to reliable, dependable, in many cases, homegrown sources of low carbon energy, that, that, is, that, that, that we will get there quicker as a result of this. Unfortunately, in the near term, I think we're likely to see some adverse impacts from a transition point of view because you can't take away 35 or so percent of Europe's natural gas and not create, in in other parts of the energy matrix, not create heightened levels of demand for other things. So we're likely to see more coal burned in Europe in the very short term. We're likely to see Europe become a very strong bidder and probably the first port of call for global cargoes of liquefied natural gas, we can expect to see something of a race to establish um, and build out uh, greater levels of uh, regasification capacity. So the ability of Europe to import that liquefied natural gas from places like the US uh, on a more global footing, because all of these things, of course, are interconnected, if Europe becomes the highest bidder for global liquefied natural gas cargoes, cargoes that would have gone to Asia will get diverted to Europe, and Asia, as a result, is likely also to burn more coal in the short term. So there's an element of, as it were, short-term pain for a longer-term gain. And I I do think strongly that... The urgency around the transition and the overall speed of the transition is likely to be accelerated. But frankly, in the near term, almost anything could happen in terms of knee-jerk reactions, responses to ensure that from an energy provision and energy supply point of view, that, that the status quo can be maintained, particularly against this rising inflationary backdrop. So that it's 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 extremely complex and will be extremely complex for a year or two but I think it will mean that the longer term race is one probably a bit quicker.
0: So what we haven't really talked about a lot is the need for transition metals. Can you go into that a bit more and how that's being affected by the geopolitical climate?
1: Yes, yeah, so this concept of transition metals is really centred around the idea that the energy system in particular, which has been fundamentally a hydrocarbon-based system for a very long time, it is, is moving towards a more metals-based system. Uh, and what we mean by that is that uh, as you move towards um, a greater percentage of power generation Uh, coming from low carbon energy sources, you're going to see a greater reliance on uh, on metals. Also, the broader concept of electrification more generally, the electrification of everything, as some people refer to it, is also going to put in place a structural tailwind for metals demand. So just to bring that to life a little bit, if we think about, for example, um, an electric vehicle versus an internal combustion engine car, and you look at the quantity of copper, which is included in the EV as, as com- compared to the ICE, uh, it's around three times more. If you think about um, the infrastructure for onshore wind and offshore wind and solar PV power generation compared to natural gas and coal, and look at the requirements for copper for nickel for zinc again it's it's 3 to 5 times more in quantum terms so this move towards low carbon which is from an environmental point of view absolutely the move that needs to be made is going to create exceptionally high levels and i would argue sustainable sustainably High levels over the next three decades of um, of, of metals demand. Uh, lithium, of course, uh, will be very important, and, and 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 indeed there are components in terms of battery composition and electricity storage, which are probably not yet fully understood from a chemical composition point of view. So this is something that we're very fixated on as as investors in this space. Uh, we think that. Um, that the companies who can establish advantaged positions as suppliers of these key metals and minerals who can do it in a sustainable way by managing their own, um, their own emissions, their own water consumption, uh, you know, well-supported, happy, healthy labor forces with good governance. We think those companies are going to do exceptionally well actually over the forthcoming
0: decades. Um, you spoke of lithium. Where's the lithium market at the moment?
1: Well, the lithium market's very buoyant um, and um, it's not the first time the market as a whole has got very constructive on lithium. Um, and, um, you know, we're watching it very carefully. Our estimates and, and, and the work that we've read from others and the, and the research that we've done suggest to us that actually in terms of, Natural supply in terms of the raw material here, there is actually, on a global basis, obviously there's there's high concentration by geography uh, with Australia, Chile and other countries being key providers, but there, we, we don't perceive there is likely to be a structural shortage of lithium. But when we think about the ability to process it, get it to market, ensure it gets to the right players, participants, and that could be more complex. But the the lithium market, um, as the price chart of lithium will 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 tell us, um, has been pretty buoyant.
0: Um, how are you seeing oil and gas companies moving from here? Are they investable for you?
1: Well, that's a fascinating question. And fr- from our perspective, as specialist natural resources investors, um, we find there is quite a broad spectrum within the oil and gas company group, by which I mean we think that the the winners and losers within that group of companies over the next 20 years will be very pronounced. Some companies will establish clear, coherent transition plans, whether that's moving towards renewable energy, carbon capture, hydrogen, perhaps even technologies that we're not even talking about today. But some companies will be able to achieve that and will actually demonstrate that they can transition and that they can become solutions providers, and if you like, diversified energy companies of the future. And we think those companies will do exceptionally well. Some companies will not be able to make that transition, either because from a strategy point of view, from a core technical capability point of view, management point of view, perhaps even a balance sheet point of view, they won't be able to make that change. So we expect a, a very interesting decade or two in front of us for, for oil and gas companies. We think there will be really strong winners. And we're very excited about uh, about gaining exposure to those. But we also think there are companies that won't be able to make it. And if I was just to identify a couple of names or a couple of groups of companies within the market, we're we're very We're very optimistic about the prospects for some of the European integrated oil majors. Uh, We spend a lot of time working with BP and Shell and Total around their transition plans. They each have a different approach, if you like, to this energy transition. They're pursuing different technological and business opportunities within low carbon. But but the ability of us as investors in these companies to to buy those stocks today on five, six, seven times earnings against a backdrop where a lot of people are not comfortable to own these names, that, that as active investors, we can buy these companies, we can engage with the management teams, we can help them to drive this transition. We think that's a tremendous opportunity
0: absolutely and a different market's looking at different solutions is nuclear energy back on the table at all
1: well it is and and it's it's a fascinating time for nuclear because one of the points i made earlier about these transitions is the sense in which it's an energy diversification rather than an overnight revolution and and the diversification combined with the Incremental addition to energy demand every year means that, in a sense, if you take away one source of supply or you interrupt supply in one area, everything is back on the table because it's a kind of all hands to the pump type moment. And so, nuclear is 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 right back in in the frame. And uh, you know, we we will see. We've heard and seen this year some encouraging signs of technological breakthroughs. Um, around nuclear technology, uh, we, we still face from a, in terms of established or current nuclear technology, there is still a question mark around cost competitiveness. Um, and there's a, there's a lead time problem in the sense that even, you know, with technological improvements, efficiency gains, etc., cetera, there's no way that nuclear or new nuclear is going to come to our rescue anytime soon if we look at 10 years then perhaps by the early 2030s it could be a bigger player in the market but it's not something that can be turned on overnight so it it could still have a bigger role to play but it's not going to do anything for us in the immediate time frame
0: and while we're on that russia isn't just a provider of oil and gas what other energy sources have been impacted by the conflict and sanctions
1: well it's it's a major um resources economy in its broadest sense, uh, so it's a it's a major global producer of palladium, for example. Uh, I, I referred a little earlier to the um, importance of of Russia in the agriculture area and, and the Ukraine too. It, it's a fairly significant producer of gold, uh, of a number of base metals. So that's that's the key distinction or or difference I would draw between the the broad commodity shock that we're seeing today versus the energy supply and the oil supply shock that we saw in the 1970s. At the same time, I would just emphasize the point that all of these things are interconnected. So the, the, the inflation that we're seeing, the upward pressure we're seeing on food prices you know, is directly linked to energy prices. Uh, energy prices are somewhere between 40 and 70 percent of food prices when you think about fertilizer, when you think about transportation, distribution, et cetera. So all of these things are interlinked. But but we cannot overstate the uh, the, the role that the Ukrainian invasion has played in all of this.
0: So how can portfolio managers and CIOs look at best making their investments in renewables and achieving carbon zero targets in the current market?
1: I think there's a number of different ways that CIOs, portfolio managers, asset allocators can get after this. Um, We think there's a really compelling investment opportunity in investing in companies that will be direct drivers of decarbonisation. Because we think that this, this move towards low carbon, this broad decarbonization of the global economy, is something that is going to be a, a structural move, a, a, a sustained structural change for two to three decades. So we, we think that if you can identify the companies that will be, if you like, the global leaders in that change, then that will be a very profitable place to be. I I would also say, circling back to the comments we made around transition metals and transition materials, I think the other side of the coin here, if you like, in gaining exposure to the renewable energy and decarb trend, the other side of the coin is identifying resources, materials, in some cases energy companies, who although in today's world and today's business model, may look like, as it were, the big emitters, whether it's an integrated energy company that's got predominantly oil and gas, but a small bit of low carbon. If that's a, a business with a market capitalization of 100, 200, 300 billion, and they are actually early in the journey from hydrocarbons to renewables, in terms of rate of change and ultimately where the company will end up, I think those businesses, whether it's in energy, in mining, in agriculture, will be a very interesting way to get exposure to that, as I say, that broader renewables and decarbonisation theme. And what's really striking to us looking at today's market is is the fact that these stocks trade so cheap, so that, that, that their ability or their potential ability to make this transition from being, as it were, the heavy emitters, the bad guys, to potentially being the solution providers, whether they're a giant copper company or an energy company that's going renewable or whatever else, that's clearly not being priced by the market today. And if they can make that shift, then I would argue that they won't trade on five, six, seven times earnings. And that's that's very exciting to us, because there is potentially a sort of arbitrage or a pricing anomaly which, which we can exploit.
0: So can you give us a couple more tips of what they might be, those companies? Well, we're
1: generally speaking, we're pretty constructive on the European oil and gas majors. Um, I I, I referenced BP, Shell, Total, Equinor as well. I should include in that. Uh, Within the mining space, I think copper over the long term is going to be a very attractive area. And we think that Glencore actually as a copper producer, but also uh, in nickel and one or two other key areas, I think Glencore is going to have a key role to play. And we also think that a lot of the historic problems from a governance uh, to some degree from an environmental point of view that that have weighed on Glencore, we think a, a, a lot of those problems are in the process of being resolved. So again, there's a kind of rate of change or improvement piece there. I think in the agriculture space, there's a lot of interesting areas because the world, I think, is just waking up to the role that sustainable agriculture companies can play. We've got to figure out a way of, as it were, feeding a, a rapidly growing global population uh, while also controlling and curbing the emissions problem. And We're particularly interested at the moment in fertilizer companies. and Nutrien is one I would highlight uh, because we think that sustainable provision of fertiliser is going to be essential in enabling us, as I mentioned, to to feed a, a, a rapidly growing global population. So it's trying to identify companies within the natural resources arena that can help to enable the transition, that can reduce their own emissions, and that can effectively persuade capital market that they are not as I mentioned, the, the bad actors that actually can be part of the solution. And, and if we can find those, we think that the returns for shareholders will be very attractive.
0: Thank you very much, Tom. That's been really enlightening and it's been great to chat with you today.
1: Thanks a lot, Julia. Really enjoyed it and I wish you a very happy weekend.
0: Thank you and you.